Welcome to Hungry for Words, a podcast in which I have lunch with a food writer and you get to listen in. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. My guest today is Michael Harlan Turkle, who is the author of Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar. I don't really throw words around like life-changing very often, but it's been a while since I did this conversation with Michael, and I have to say that his book really changed the way I fundamentally think about vinegar and the important role that it plays in cooking. It's changed how I cook, but it's also changed how I write recipes and how I talk about cooking. And I think that's a pretty big thing for a book to be able to do that. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with you. First, as always, I'm going to make a recipe from the book. So I'm flipping through Acid Trip, and really, frankly, this is exactly my kind of book. It's kind of geeky. It goes a little, maybe a little too in depth for most like kind of casual cooks, but I don't care. He talks about the history of vinegar, how vinegar is made. He has a 16 page uh, whole thing in the back. I thought like how to make vinegar would be something really simple instead of this whole really long complicated thing around lactic acid and all this stuff that I don't really understand. But that's okay. So I'm flipping through it, though, and there are all these amazing recipes. And I'm not going to lie, I've actually made several of these recipes because last night we had a party in my house for Michael. I made about four or five dishes out of this book, and they were all amazing. I really appreciate food writers who are exact, um, who are good at writing recipes, and he is good. All of his recipes work. He lets you know what you need to know when you need to know, and he doesn't over-explain, which I really enjoy. So there are all kinds of things like braised meats with vinegar, and there's these gojajang wings, which are off the hook, which I made for the party and people devoured, and I'm going to have to write about them some other time because they were just so great. What I decided to make for the show today is really a, how shall I say, an emotional or nostalgic choice seafoam candy. So seafoam candy, uh, if you're not from Michigan, you probably have never heard of it. I grew up in Michigan, as did Michael's wife. And if you go to any of the little seaside towns, they sell all this seafoam candy. And I had never knew what was in it. It's just this weird, crunchy, super sweet stuff. It turns out he's a recipe for it. I've never actually seen one before. And it's sugar, corn syrup, or honey, and uh, some cider vinegar, some water, and then you add in some baking soda, and that's what causes all the bubbles. His version is, of course, very refined. It has, you know, Aleppo chili flakes or lavender flowers or toasted fennel seeds you can put on the top. When I was a little girl, it had sugar, because really what goes better with sugar than more sugar. So there was always this, like, crushed sugar on the top of it. Sometimes it also comes dipped in chocolate, and he does give that as an option as well. So I'm going to give it a try. I'm a little nervous uh, because this feels like sort of pastry baking something sweet to me and I don't really do that very often so um, it involves a a candy thermometer and I had to go dig mine out I can't remember the last time I used it so we are going to embark with that now so you start with sugar honey cider vinegar I'm going to add all these into the pot and now I'm adding some water 
And so the idea is you put everything into this very deep pot. And I have a really deep, like, kind of pasta pot because apparently, and he says, and this is really what I like about the way he writes recipes, the mixture will foam up to at least twice its size. So make sure that you use a really deep pot. So I'm placing it over high heat. I'm going to cover it. And now I'm bringing it to a boil. The lid will prevent the sugar from crystallizing, he says, on the sides. Now, as the water begins to cook off, the boiling is supposed to come louder. So um, I'm waiting for the loudness. Okay, that's definitely getting louder. Okay, I'm going to put the calendar thermometer in. It is 240. That's going up. 250, 260, and 290. Okay, now very quickly, I have to whisk in the baking soda. Okay, this is uh, okay. This is crazy. Um, it's kind of starting to actually explode. It looks like a bomb just went off in this pot. This is kind of crazy. Okay, and then I'm supposed to stir rapidly to incorporate and then stop. And now I am pouring it out onto a lined baking sheet. Okay, and it's coming out, and it looks like a sugary blob, like a blonde sugary. But I can kind of see why it's called seafoam. Like it, it has sort of this weird wave going on and it's kind of bubbling in places. I'm really desperately want to like smooth it all out with my spatula, but I'm kind of letting it kind of just be kind of chunky. It looks like a confection from another planet. I decided to go to my childhood and put um, some crushed, just some sugar in the raw and uh, on one part, and then some lavender flowers on the other, and a little bit of uh, sea salt, and some Aleppo chili, and some fennel on another part, just so we kind of got it mixed up, you know, just to keep it interesting. I'm going to get a glass of wine, let this cool for 45 minutes, and I'm going to see what the hell happened. And I am back. Okay, so now I'm going to break it into pieces, and I'm going to try one. This is so good. I'm going to put it into some airtight containers, and we're going to see Michael tomorrow. Welcome to my kitchen. Well, thank you for having me. So, vinegar. How did this all start? Oh, uh, accidentally. I think like how most people intentionally or unintentionally make vinegar the first time by leaving a bottle of red wine out and open. Um, that kind of happened at the same time. I had a party in my backyard during Thanksgiving, and we didn't finish the keg. And I had this barrel sitting there. I think I was going to make some barrel-aged cocktail, you know, because I am from Brooklyn, and that was the trend at the time. Um, I never really got around to it, but filled that barrel up of the leftover beer, and it snowed, and it overwintered, and I kind of just left it. Six months later, I opened up that barrel, and it was the best beer malt vinegar I've ever had in my life. Wow. Um, and I had no clue how it happened. You know, and it was completely non-interventionist, too. You know, I just left it out there, and it did its thing. So after that, I came particularly uh, obsessed with the idea of vinegar or acetic acid and had to reverse engineer that. And, and for years, literally, like two, three years, I was working backwards to try to make that same malt beer vinegar again. And it was frustrating as hell because I couldn't. You know, through my journeys uh, in writing my book, Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar, um, I got to see a lot of vinegars in a lot of different cultures and contexts. And what I started to realize is that, you know, 
it's not just a pantry item. It's an agricultural product. You can go to the field as if it was wine and stopping by a vineyard. Um, you can go to a rice paddy if you're dealing with rice vinegar, you know, an apple orchard for apple vinegars. What, what was kind of amazing was to find that vinegar is a living, breathing thing, and it is seasonal, and it changes, and it's temporal, and it's finicky, you know, and it's fleeting, and it's, it's something I had taken for granted my whole life. I think most people do. I mean, I, you know, I think of it as just sort of a pantry staple. I have, uh, you know, apple cider vinegar, and if I don't have white wine vinegar, I'd substitute that, and if I don't have red wine vinegar, I'll use that, and, but I really haven't given a lot of thought to it. I, I think a few years ago, I started paying more attention because I was teaching cooking classes, and we really started talking a lot about vinegar and about acid and about the importance of acid in cooking, but, you know, even now, I, I mean, we're going to taste some vinegars in a bit, but it kind of blew my mind that you could make vinegar with coffee grounds or candy canes and oh it's an amazing flavor carrier i mean that's the thing the spectrum of bases of materials that you can actually make vinegar out of uh, aren't limited to you know red and white wines again apple cider rice i've seen vinegars made out of purple you know sweet potatoes from northern japan it's anything that is a starch that can convert into a sugar that can then turn into an alcohol can be a vinegar. So, I mean, you walk around your supermarket or your farmer's market, uh, it's like that Tootsie Roll commercial. Everything I see now turns into vinegar for me. Interesting. So, you know, in terms of vinegar, like your wife writes about wine, and you said that this must be really frustrating (laughs) for her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a little antithetical that, you know, I'm turning what she kind of loves and adores and, you know, waxes poetic on into this finite product that can never go back. Um, that's not to say she doesn't like vinegar. She doesn't love vinegar in the same way I do, but she understands the importance of acidity. And it happens in wine, too, um, and even to an extreme. You know, there's volatile acidity in some more biodynamic wines. But working in kitchens, they're salt to taste. And I think most chefs and home cooks know that that's how you finish a dish. But when something's missing and, and, and you know, recipe is a little flat, the thing that's missing is acidity and you know chefs will tell you you know that dish needs something put in some acidity so she understands and i certainly now understand like the crux of what acidity can do for a spectrum of food that's an interesting point because i deal a lot with home cooks and the instruction salt to taste is confusing and and i think they're you know they ask whose taste i mean how do i know if it tastes right and you know and it's one of those things to try to get the confidence for home cooks to if it tastes good to you but I think finishing something with acid or adding a little, you know, vinegar to brighten up a flavor is not something that comes intuitively to home cooks. No, and I'd love to see the term vinegar to taste kind of, you know, fall into the culinary lexicon <laughs> like salt to taste. But so many recipes had been written in a way where maybe there were better vinegars or people were more prone to having acidic palates. Um, you look at French vinaigrettes versus U.S. ones, and the French ones are striking and bracing and, you know, pretty acidic. But that's, you know, Dijonese. That is, you know, Lyonnaise cuisine. Uh, then you come here and people like sharp flavors, but I don't think as much. And also the quality of vinegar was very different here. We're at a point where, and I can wax poetic about this, and, or, or go on a diatribe, is uh, the quality of vinegar is, is so much lower than it ever used to be. 50 to 70 years ago, kind of after World War II, um, things changed here and a lot of those processes became more industrial. 
Um, so we're using these vinegars that are made out of ethanol, so not really the best base products. And they burn. They're like an acetone punch to the chest and you cough. And I think that's what a lot of people think of as vinegar and have been scared to use it in the same way that you salt to taste because a little goes a long way. But these are products that are so big and powerful and don't really have any kind of nuance or character or story to them. So, you know, it's that gut punch again. It's, it's that big huff of acetone, but it's not really flavor. It's not really, you know, nuance. It's not really being a cook. That, of course, goes back to the supermarket, you know, your your supermarket vinegars, right? And it's funny because now that after I read your book, I had a couple in my, you know, I have a don't I mean, like everybody, everybody I did too does. When I started this, process. yeah. So I went and I tasted. It. One of the things I have noted is that they're very flat tasting, like they're just sharp and acidy, but they don't necessarily have the flavor, as you were saying. And I think that, you know, most people don't think to go to their pantry and go taste their vinegars. But I will tell you, if you're listening to this podcast, you should go and go do that right now. <laughs> so, but you know, when you're talking about the ethanol and you know, is that just because like so much of our food chain that it has just become industrialized? Yeah, and it's more economical and it's subsidized, you know, and there's a lot of corn in this country. So it's a very easy base vinegar to make. And then that's where you put your coloring and flavoring agents and stabilizers. And you can look on the shelves and see red vinegar and white vinegar. Um, you know, both are supposed to be wine vinegars, but they really don't have any grapes or wine in them. You know, maybe they have some grape must. Uh, I've seen apple cider vinegars that are white distilled vinegar with caramel coloring and, you know, flavoring. And so, yeah, I think it was just a much cheaper and faster way, actually, because vinegar is not a quick thing. Uh, the, the two main ingredients in this book on how to make vinegar happen to be time and patience. You know, you can make it from the spectrum of bases and materials again, but really the best thing or the best vinegars come to those that wait. It's a lot like wine in that way. Right? Yeah, but just a step after that. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, you know, you can't kind of fool the laws of physics to, you know, just like if you're making soup, you can't furiously boil something for 20 minutes and try to fool, you know, the universe that you slow cooked it for two or three hours. Yeah, and when you try, there's a noted difference. Uh, there are these large acetators, this stainless steel stills that you know industrial companies pump oxygen through and it's trying to do that it's trying to fake time and it rips out all those aromas and you're left with acid you know you're left with a certain amount of acetic acid in solution which is water and that's all you get and then you have to add things back in the vinegars we have on the table right now and that we're going to taste are kind of wondrous things and they took a lot of tweaking and you know there are variables and controls it's not a hard thing to make vinegar but you have to keep a watchful eye on it during certain points and it really shows in these vinegars because they're so expressive and so singular nice so why don't we taste these let's jump Sounds in great. so okay let's start with the kind of more quirky ones so candy cane vinegar really never thought i would see that and coffee vinegar so what's the story behind that and tell us about these vinegar makers well justin dean and richard stewart are in ohio and they're doing this amazing project where they're kind of upcycling a lot of things that would go to waste and they're young vinegar makers i don't mean young in age but they're young in making vinegar they're not old either 
there. <laughs> Sorry, Justin and Richard. But what they're doing is taking things that would otherwise, you know, be thrown out, you know, either a subsidiary product of a, of a specific business and then turning it into vinegar. So the coffee vinegar is actually made of, you know, some steep coffee, but mainly coffee grounds. Vinegar or acetic acid is an amazing product that that pulls out flavor and color so you not only taste how vibrant these things are but you see how vibrant the colors are as well so with a little bit of spent coffee grounds and putting in kind of a white or more neutral looking base vinegar you can pull out all that coffee flavor and color same thing goes for these candy canes and like you said before i never expected to see a candy cane vinegar and when they sent this to me i I was kind of over the moon there was this company that was throwing out a whole bunch of busted candy canes and i had mentioned before that you know vinegar could be made of any alcohol that before that is any sugar so they found a sugar source and they got all these broken candy canes and infused this into a vinegar if not used that sugar to kind of up the abv before they converted it and it tastes like candy canes it looks like candy canes it's kind of an amazing product that obviously would be great for the holidays but awesome in other culinary or or dessert applications. I would even probably use this in some kind of drinks as well. So it's just cool to see what I thought was a really large array of materials that you can make vinegar from. And then these things that I would never have expected. Yeah, it's it's sort of, you know, kind of goes with this whole concept of organic diversion, where you're taking something that would be thrown away and and make it into something else and reimagine it. So, which I think is really cool. I mean, otherwise you just have a bunch of candy canes in a landfill yeah. and that's not doing anybody yeah. any good. And, and something that will be lasting too. You know, vinegar is not only a preservative, but it is its own preservative. So you make these things and you put them on your shelf, they're going to last forever. Once you open them up, maybe put them in the fridge uh, because they can re-ferment if they're live acetobacter. Um, so I put all my really good vinegars once I open them, you know, in the fridge and even if you haven't opened them, don't keep them over a heat source. You know, most people find their vinegars uh, in the pantry, kind of near their stove, but they're becoming reductive, if not oxidized. So again, these are living, breathing things. So treat them with the kind of respect you would other, you know, beautiful organic produce. It's totally true. I go into people's houses and I see they have olive oil and vinegar right in that shelf, that oh, yeah. small one above the stove. People, move your vinegar, move your olive oil, put your good stuff in the fridge and otherwise put it in like a cold space, like a not cold, but put it in a dark kind of pantry area where it's not exposed to a lot of heat. Correct. Okay, so let's start with uh, some candy cane action here. It's pink. I mean, it, it, it is what you expect. Like if you crush up a bunch of candy yeah. canes and like even just left them in water. And there's a little bit of mustard. What is this at the bottom? It's like oh, a that, little that bit sediment. of sediment. Yeah, I mean, that can maybe turn into a mother someday. Hmm. You know, that, that sediment might just be particulates in the solution. And maybe they're float up because of density or something like that. But they're nothing to worry about. Okay. All right, I'm going to taste it. But you see, like, we didn't Mm -hmm. aspirate like you do for olive oil or or wine because, again, it's a weak acid, but it is an acid. Mm -hmm. And you sit there and you try to do with vinegar, you're definitely going to cough. So you kind of want to introduce it to your palate slowly and softly, maybe a little dab, and it raises Mm -hmm. your taste buds and then maybe a little bit more after and kind of let it wash over. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think if you're listening, you're going, oh, my God, they're tasting vinegar. But it's funny because you put a, a little bit, 
as you just said, and kind of let your mouth get accommodated to it and not overwhelm it. Like I would not take a big swig of vinegar. That probably would really actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm We're not using a, like little baby, yeah. like very precious espresso spoons and just pouring them into the spoons and then letting the, the rest get picked well, I, up on a ramekin. I'm not an apple cider shot of vinegar in the morning kind of guy. No, I'm definitely not. Yeah. And, and not because I don't think it's not good for you. Um, it might not be. Uh, if it's live, Acetobacter has a real live mother. You know, it has all those healthy things going on. But mm-hmm. if it's your regular over-the-counter supermarket pasteurized vinegar, I'm not so sure about that. Hmm. So I couldn't really put any conclusive evidence in my book on that. And my book's not really about, you know, the health benefits, even though I believe in those things for, you know, real good live Acetobacter vinegars. But the shot in the morning is more particular to your personal pH or preference. Hmm. You know, I'm somebody that can eat a lemon if I wanted, uh, you know, and, and, and drink a shot of vinegar. I've never really had acid reflux, thank God, because otherwise I couldn't have done this project. But it is kind of a very personal thing to say whether or not you should be taking that shot and whether or not you even like acidity. That's a really good point. I think that, you know, a lot of it comes back to personal taste and knowing like, people know what they like. You know, it's worth always trying. Like my mother and father always said, you have to taste everything, but you know, you have and eat what you take. But if you just want a taste of it, that's fine. You just had to taste everything. You could not make a blanket statement like, I don't like Brussels sprouts without providing evidence that Mm -hmm. you've actually eaten Brussels sprouts. I'm all about the empirical data. (laughs) Exactly. So let's talk about this. Uh, So candy cane, it really is kind of, I tasted this last night and I was like, "Mm, I'm not really sure if I like it. And today I, like it better and I'm not really sure why and I realize now that I think I had this candy cane after I had some wine yeah and I think it may have impacted my flavor oh absolutely you know a a lot of cuisines use acidity and vinegar to open up a a meal Um, kaiseki cuisine in Japanese culture uses kind of this tart soup Sometimes you'll have pickles at the table already, and that really opens up your palate, you know, raises those taste buds, make mm-hmm. you salivate. But if you're having something before, yeah, that, that pairing kind of can throw things off, especially, you know, red wines that have a lot of uh, tannins to them. It's, it's interesting to see where vinegar fits in a meal, aside from it just being this pantry item. You know, it doesn't work with everything. It works great with fat. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you make beurre blancs or you make, you know, a... Uh, Bernays sauces or hollandaise even, you need a little bit of that vinegar to cut that fat of the butter of the egg yolk, but also create this harmony, create this balance, let it emulsify and coalesce. So it doesn't always have to be this forefront flavor as well. You know, it can be something that is part of the package as a whole. And I found that in Japan completely. Went there thinking I was going to find all these amazing, you know, small batch shokunin artisan vinegar makers. And I found a few, had to dig a little bit, but it's not a pronounced flavor. It's not a something that you know hits you when you first taste it, but it's there, and it's almost always there. It's it's as ubiquitous as anything, um, but it's part of balance. It's part of that wabi sabi. Uh, it's kind of a fascinating thing that you know. I I, I again thought I was going to find all these artisans, and I did, but. Since it's not that big a flavor or forefront thing, I don't think it was as merited to have the most artisan ingredient, uh, you know, in that recipe. 
Interesting. So with something like this, like this candy cane, which is a very pronounced flavor, right? It's distinctive. And it's funny, uh, as I'm letting this rest on my tongue, I'm actually picking up like the actual peppermint. Like it now, this astringent element of the yeah, vinegar it's, is it's gone. Like but the volatile acidity. You know, that evaporates. Yeah. That That's vapors and they kind of go retronasal and you smell them and you taste them, but mm-hmm. then they kind of fade away. And now I those are gone and now I taste peppermint. Yeah. It's fascinating. That's fascinating. So what would you do with a candy cane vinegar? Vinegar is really cool in desserts, and I don't think a lot of people explore that enough. But there's this one method, uh, making meringues. A little bit of vinegar actually stabilizes the albumin, uh, the egg whites. So it makes a crunchier outside and a softer middle. But it also carries a little flavor and color. So I'd probably make meringues with this during the holidays. Ooh. Maybe even a pavlova. And then, you know, you already have that peppermint flavor in 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 the meringue itself, and then fill that with a whole bunch of maybe even red wine vinegar macerated red berries. Oh, that so sounds Double delight. shot of vinegar there. Oh, that sounds great. Oh, gosh. All right. Let's move on. How about coffee? How about it? Let's try it. Okay, I'm going to pour a little into my spoon. Here we go. Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to take a quick taste of this. And we are, of course, in Seattle, which, you know, is a city that runs on coffee and prides itself on coffee. So I felt like we had to taste that. Yeah, I'm going back for a second shot. I'm not mm-hmm. actually a caffeine drinker, so it's very funny that I'm having this much coffee vinegar in the morning. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it has acidity because it is vinegar, but it's like dark and roasty and nutty and kind of lush. Yeah, it does. It has kind of a round flavor to it, if that makes any sense. And now that the acid punch is kind of drawing back I can actually kind of taste coffee yeah and to me it tastes like um like a malty coffee you know like a like a malty shot of espresso yeah where it's got the foam on the top like it tastes like the foam on the top of the espresso and it has a little bit of that mouthfeel too has a little Mm -hmm. bit of that texture so what would you do with the coffee vinegar spectrum of things you know I think those flavors go so well with dark roasted meats, Mm -hmm. Um, even searing a steak and making a pan sauce kind of in the vein of red eye gravy would be really cool. Deglazing that fond. I'd also probably use it maybe to brighten up a braise, Mm. Um, something Mm -hmm. that's been cooking for long and sometimes the fat floats to the top and it gets a little murky just to, you know, add that accent of acidity. But who's to say? I mean, you can do it with roasted root vegetables too to add a little bit of nuttiness as well. Uh, I use it for a salad dressing for certain things that need the foil of that you know dark roast but i don't think there's any singular way to use any of these vinegars i think it's just taste profile uh you know what you like and where you like it and the book kind of gives a range of technique and doesn't overtly want you to cook with one vinegar in one way i think try every recipe in the book and change the vinegars that are in those recipes My granddad, uh, who was a cook in the army, he used to make this beef stew that was his big signature item. I, I researched it and, and put it in my last book, and he finished his beef stew with vinegar. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I put in molasses, and then he put in vinegar. And it was I'd never seen a beef stew recipe that called for that. And I thought, is that right? Because it's this old recipe, and somebody had written it down, and I did it. And he it was so right. Yeah. <laughs> it was so great, because it really did cut through this... This, you know, kind of the meatiness of it 
and actually gave it like this brighter flavor. That's why a lot of barbecue sauces have so much vinegar in them, you know, so you can eat those heavy and dark roasted meats for a longer period of time or more of it. Uh, from North Carolina, which is very vinegary and, you know, spicy, has a lot of chili flakes. South Carolina, which is mustard based. Alabama, white sauce, which is mayo and vinegar based. You know, they're all foils for fattiness. Oh, yeah. That coffee vinegar would be great in a barbecue, oh, homemade barbecue sauce. Seriously. You know, there's actually another recipe in the book. It's actually a, a more breakfast egg recipe. It's called Oves and Marette. And I had it at Bistro Paul Bear in Paris. You actually poach eggs in this red wine vinegar sauce, which is, if not a relative, almost exactly what bourguignon sauce is and should be. So it's the same kind of components, but with a little bit of acidity, brighten it up. It also stabilizes the, you know, egg white when you poach in it. And it is one of my favorite breakfasts now. Mm, I saw that recipe in the book. I was like, hmm, we're going to give that a try. Okay, so let's move on to the other Madhouse vinegar company vinegar, which is dark malt and this one has like a real label on it so the other two <laughs> are just bottles and they've they've gotten like uh you know little stickers on say what they are but this one has like a proper it looks like they sell this in stores oh like i said they're a young company they mm-hmm. kind of just started in the past year or two perfecting their craft before they started releasing their vinegars mm-hmm. um and they're launching their company kind of right about now for you know the 2018 season so get your holiday shopping on right this is so cool. I do not know why there aren't better beer vinegars in this country because we have such good craft beer. There should be better craft beer vinegar or any for that case, for that matter. Uh, there is not much. And even traveling through the world, I was trying to go to the UK because I love fish and chips and have an amazing recipe from April Bloomfield in the book. It's the only recipe that actually doesn't have vinegar in it. But the most important part of that recipe is having a bottle of dark malt vinegar on the table. And... And even in the UK, I couldn't find much more than Sarsons. You know, here it's Heinz. And again, we have such good beer. We should have better, if any, beer vinegar. Yeah, I that makes total sense. I lived in the UK for five years, and it's absolutely true. I, coming back, I can't eat fish and chips without malt vinegar. It just doesn't taste right without it. Well, I'll leave you this bottle. Mm. It has like a sweetness to it that is unexpected to me. Yeah, you know... Vinegar is made of sugar that turns mm-hmm. into alcohol, of course, and the highest part of the process in brewing is the wort. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if they use a little bit of wort added in to kind of bump it up a little bit. Yeah, and after the acid kind of is evaporated, I taste like a, a the chocolatiness of a porter yeah. or, some, or a stout, something like that. I make a lot of beer vinegar, and I only actually make it off our dark uh, porters and stouts. Because mm-hmm. I've actually found hops to be an inhibiting agent. Um, doesn't allow acetic acid to thrive. It, it's a preservative, too. So if you want a hop of vinegar, you kind of have to dry hop it afterwards or you know throw in some uh, pellets and kind of strain that out. So I think the more expressive beer vinegars are the ones with darker roasted malts. Right, nice. And you you know that you make a great point. It sort of why why do we have great craft beer and we don't have great craft malt vinegar? Because it's the next have, step. Yeah. Why do we have great wine? Why do we have great cider now, uh, and not have better apple cider vinegars? Um, yeah, that question can kind of go into a lot of different categories. Mm. And I I wonder if it's because the market for these kinds of small like more artisanal vinegars isn't there because people don't know that how great they can be 
or how to use them properly. That's you a know, good you're point. You're not necessarily going to invest money in product that you don't know how to use. That's so, a, yeah, that's a great point. I'm, I'm trying to not just provide a story and take you on a trip around the world that shows you how beautiful vinegar can be, but also kind of hold your hand a little bit and just use it in very simple fashions in the kitchen as well. And I think once you get that ability under your belt and you trust yourself a little bit with acidity, then you'd be willing to get these kind of, and they're not more expensive, you know, maybe a little bit, um, these more particular and, and singular vinegars. You know, I teach cooking to home cooks a lot. And one of the things that they, you know, that many people express to me is they say, well, you know, I bought this because it was cheaper. And I bought this kind of thing because it was a little bit cheaper. But really, if you think about the flavor value that you get out of it and the longevity and for how long you can have one of these vinegars, I mean, it's different than even olive oil. It's like you buy a really nice olive oil. And once you open it, unless you're very careful and you keep it in the fridge, yeah. it's six months, maybe. But you know, these you can have for a long time. So even if you spend, say, $8 on a bottle of vinegar instead of four or five, you, you get as something that's going to have a payoff that maybe the lesser quality ingredient isn't going to deliver. I think I was doing the kind of economics of balsamic last night. I was speaking to everybody about why it's worth tasting DOP Traditionale. There are these little bottles, 100 milliliters, uh, and it, that's regulated by the consortium of either Modena or Reggio Emilia and Emilia Romagna, Italy, which are literally the only two towns in the world that can make traditionale DOP balsamic. And those bottles go for anywhere between maybe $125 to $300. That's because they're aged anywhere from 12 to 25 plus years. So the cost of actually making that product doesn't make sense for them to make and sell that product. Just the time put in, the space that they have to use to you know, have these batteria, these series of 5 to 12 descending size barrels uh, changing in wood from usually hard like oaks and ashes to juniper and cherry for flavor at the end. But to buy a bottle of that, 100 milliliters, for let, let's say, you know, 150 to $200, you're only going to use maybe half a milliliter to one milliliter at a time for a recipe for it to be really expressive. I mean, they're, they're powerful drops of balsamic. And if you don't want to buy a bottle yourself, go in with a couple friends, split it up. And the cost of using that drop is anywhere from a quarter to a dollar, depending on how much you've paid for the bottle. But you're willing to do that with other ingredients. Um, you go to a pasta restaurant and they shave a whole bunch of truffles on and you're going to spend 25 plus dollars for you know an ounce serving. I don't see why you wouldn't want to do that for real vinegars as well. And again, these are these amazing flavor carriers. You don't need much to have an impact. So the cost of each one of these drops of vinegar is is almost negligible in in the larger scheme of things. Mm, it's like buying really nice salt. Yep. You know, it may be more expensive, but you don't use very much, and it's still going to be one of the least expensive ingredients in a dish. Agreed. It is worth the investment. So not everybody is going to go out and buy a $150 bottle of vinegar. So let's talk about this one uh, that we have here. Awesome. This is uh, from Lucini, which is a great Italian importer. And... There are a lot of different types of balsamic, but the two that you should definitely get, if not the traditional like DOP, is this thing called IGP. And it's a, I, I, I can never say, you know, the Italian term, but it's a geographic region and is protected in this way that it's made of specific ingredients in a specific way. So it's regulated to have grapes from 
the Emilia Romagna region, even though that's changing a little bit and sometimes you find them from Spain, but it has to be aged for at least 60 days in that region before it can be shipped somewhere else to, you know, be processed or aged a little further, but at least it's good juice. And balsamic's a funny one, even though it's the most ubiquitous vinegar around the world and it's a billion dollar industry. It didn't really start in the U.S. till about 1972. And there was this guy named Chuck Williams of Williams Sonoma who brought it back and started selling this product and it exploded. So we're only about, what, 50 years into having balsamic in the U.S. Uh, even at that time, most of Italy didn't know what balsamic was. It was kind of relegated to that region. And it's because it's this thing that was never supposed to be a retail product. Mothers would make it for their daughters when they were born and then, you know, age it. X amount of years and give it away as a dowry when they were married. Or sometimes you give it away as a gift to a friend during the holidays or if somebody did something great for you. But, you know, to, to see it on every supermarket shelf is almost unbelievable to balsamic makers of nearly 50 years ago. So there are balsamics out there. But again, I, I really think you should try the DOP, not only just for the flavor, but to keep that legacy alive. So these IGPs are, are good ideas and decent replicas and i think this igp particularly is is a very nice one to try because it's a little bit aged too so i'm going to look at the ingredient list because that's the best way to figure out whether or not it's a good one and this one has wine vinegar grape must and a little caramel coloring so the fact that it has grape must is a good thing because some balsamics don't even have that and they have artificial flavoring and coloring so you want something that at least has that let's taste this thing yeah if, if it doesn't have a grape must in it, what is it made out of? Or is that just a really... <laughs> no, I mean, you tell me. It can be made of a whole bunch of different things. It can be a white distilled vinegar with a whole bunch of different flavors and colors. Um, again, having IGP on the label, at least you know that it's made in a specific manner of specific things. If it doesn't have DOP or IGP on the label, who knows? Mm, that's a great point. The interesting thing I find about basomic is on its own, it's a flavor profile. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is beautiful. It's a kind of sweet, some caramel notes, a little fig. Yeah. I mean, sweet and sour. It's agriculture. Yeah. yeah. And balsamic's kind of an outlier, even for being the most ubiquitous one around the world. It's made in the style that most others, if not all others, are made. It's a syrup. So it's the great must um, the same grape that's used for Lambrusco wine, then reduced down to about 40%, and then it starts getting aged and fermented. There's this other product called Saba, which is literally that reduced down to 30% and sold, so they don't have to wait and age it, um, throw it right onto the market. But the beauty of balsamic vinegar is that acetobacter and that aging. You know, one of the things that I talk a lot about with my home cooks that I, I teach uh, is, you know, when people buy bottles of, say, balsamic, you know, strawberry vinaigrette or berry vinaigrette. And I'm just like, just get some jam, get some balsamic, shake it up with some olive yep, oil and salt and pepper. And congratulations, you just made a really fancy gourmet, in quotes, gourmet, you know, uh, vinaigrette. Yeah, and you add some texture too, so it's more like the DOPs. Mm -hmm. A lot of oil and vinegar shops have these, you know, infused vinegars. Um, and not that I have, well, I do have things against it, but it's actually a really nice introduction to vinegar as a whole and different flavors of vinegar. But a lot of those ask where they come from, ask, you know, where they're getting their balsamics or getting their other vinegars. Uh, if it's a specific company, if there's 
a specific brand that they can show you. Otherwise, it might be some of the big guys infusing with a whole bunch of artificial thing. I was showing you some of the stuff that I have in my my pantry, and you said, oh, this is this one company, and they make a whole bunch of different types of vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to necessarily name the company if you don't want to, but um, but it's one company that makes a lot of different brands that look like they're kind of smaller artisan brands, for lack of a better Yeah, right? it's true. Yeah. Uh, it's in California, and I'll let uh, people kind of dig for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a classic place. Interesting. Okay, so we're going to move on to, how about this uh, Cabernet? And, and this, or no, this is the Rosé. So uh, this is from Omed, and these bottles are beautiful, by the way. And the clarity of the vinegar is, that just the color is striking. Um, tell me about this company. So they're located in Spain, and they're actually olive oil producers as well. And they make olive oil in the south of Spain, I think near Malaga. But they make vinegar north near Barcelona, and they use this old method. It's actually really funny that a Spanish vinegar maker is using a German method called Stupsenbach to make make their vinegars. Um, It's this cool method that's kind of a trickling bed. So there's also the Boraheves barrel method, but what you're doing is pretty much aerating it through some kind of uh, particulate. So beechwood shavings most often happens in, in the Boraheves method, but what you're doing is kind of pouring it from the top, letting it trickle down and it's aerating, it's collecting in a bed in the bottom, and then you kind of recycle that process over and over again. And what that does is it's not like putting you know, industrial acetators that force pump a whole bunch of air in and you kind of strip out the aromas. This is happening a little slower and a little more naturally. So what I think it does, it produces these vinegars that have, you know, the the aromatics retained, you know, they're captured within there and they get carried through rather than kind of leaving like vapors when you're doing it really quickly. And I think their line of wine vinegars in particular uh, are so expressive it's like opening up a wine and being able to talk about those notes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's got red berry. It's got a little bit of tannin here. It's got this kind of structure. You can pick up herbs and try one of the Omed wine vinegars versus just a red wine vinegar from the supermarket. And there's no comparison in those notes. I mean, there aren't notes for the red wine vinegar. Right. Cause it's very flat. It's got a singular kind of flavor to it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I think one of the things you said about this too, is that if you, are a wine drinker. This is a really nice sort of introduction to upping your vinegar game. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple rules about wine vinegars, and it's, you know, well, one, look for grapes or wine on the label in the ingredient list. Uh, Some don't have it. Then number two, look for a particular grape, you know, an actual variety on the bottle. So this has rosé, but there's also uh, Chardonnay and Moscato and Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, Omed does kind of a spectrum of these things. And then third, a vineyard like there are wineries even in the states um i love cat's vinegar out in california in napa valley that make single varietal wine vinegars you know he makes this amazing honey viognier late harvest vinegar that kind of blows my mind and vinegars have terroir they actually can show you know a time and a place that way interesting so yeah as you said it's a living breathing thing so let's try this this one the rosé I, I don't tell people often to, you know, smell the vinegar, put it right near your nose, but this one mm. deserves a little huff because it actually has a bouquet. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
And I think they mm. leave a little bit of residual sugar in these things. Mm -hmm. So it's not all vapor hitting your nose really quickly that it kind of you know, tightens it up. It's a little more constricted until you either pour it on something or add a little bit of heat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you can definitely just in smelling it, smell the kind of floral quality to it. Oh, yeah. This is so much more like wine. Yeah. Than like a red wine vinegar where it tastes like vinegar. Yeah. This actually tastes like wine. Mm. And I'm a rosé all year round wine drinker. And now I'm a rosé all year round wine vinegar user. Yeah, me too. I, I'm a I total convert. Mm. Yeah, and it even says on the bottle, it's tripot. Like it's an actual grape variety. Mm -hmm. It has like a, it has kind of a sweetness, a little bit of citrus, a little bit of fig, maybe. I'm, yeah, it's got a lot going on. It's very complex. And it seems like the longer that it's on my tongue, the more it kind of opens. So what would you use this for? What would I use this for? God, I think I would, I think your idea of deglazing a pan, because I would use wine, that maybe I'd use wine, this wine vinegar, like on something that would be kind of a nice, somewhat delicate sauce, I think. I think this can be uh, used in cocktails. Oh, uh, yeah, I would totally do that. Yeah, you know, a lot of people will kind of reach for citrus. And, you know, I do sometimes. It's not to say I hate lemons and limes, just there's a time and place to use all those things. But having a little float of vinegar in a drink in replacement of those other kind of acidities is kind of a cool thing. I'm, I'm totally thinking some gin or vodka with this action. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I, so I drink a lot of vinegar uh, with soda water. Oh, you yeah. Know, just a splash uh -huh. there and it opens up, it brings all those aromatics and then uh, CO2 is actually carbonic acid, so you kind of get a double whammy of that. Um, mm -hmm. So it's nice, light, it's refreshing. That's interesting because I I put I put bitters. Yeah, in, it's the same thing. In seltzer water a lot. Yeah, you know they're both not yeah. to get too technical, kind of like hydrosols. They are these flavor carriers in solution. So mm -hmm. you let that flavor carry in something else, and it kind of expands. You know. Uh, the other thing I think, and this is you know, you were talking about how. There's sort of, you know, you have the, say, apple cider vinegar that you're going to braise pork in, which I made that recipe. That, and that was beautiful. Oh, Thank you, Hugh so Atchison. You know, <laughs> was great. what was amazing about this book is, you know, I didn't think anyone knew or cared who I was. And um, maybe they don't now, but I wanted to collect recipes from chefs around the world. And I've been a photographer in the culinary space for over a decade and, you know, worked with edible magazines and a whole bunch of other things. So I've gotten to see and taste really beautiful dishes and really outstanding applications of vinegar. So I called these recipes from everybody and, you know, I call in my favors. And Hugh uh, is down in Athens, Georgia and Atlanta, actually makes vinegar himself and not many chefs do. So I thought he was one of those kind of amazing extraneous guys. He collects figs during the summer and makes vinegars with his daughters and then uses that in his restaurants all year round. But this cider braised, oh, the cider braised pork shoulder is so easy too. It was, it was really easy. And it was just sort of, you, you know, have the cider, a few, a few other ingredients. He had leeks, which I love leeks and I don't think people cook with them enough. And it was like leeks and some bay leaves and some thyme and, and then you just slow cook it and braise it for a few hours, and it just uh, was crazy off the hook. And and but something I could you could do for a big crowd. Yeah, and it stays really well, not just because of the vinegar in there as a preservative, but like you make a whole bunch, and it's always acidic and sapid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, delicious. And that, so and this so that's like a vinegar you cook with, and it's like a big ingredient. And you you know use a fair amount of it. And as you were talking about 
this? Is it like a finishing vinegar? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the process. And yeah, you're going to spend a little more money if you use nice apple cider vinegar in that braise, but it's going to make for a nice, nicer braise. So I, I'm willing to make the investment. It's not like I'm making a giant pork shoulder all the time. And when I do make it, I want to make it with the best ingredients because I'm taking that time to make it. Right, exactly. So the last one we have here, tell me about this company. This is actually, speaking of cocktails, so we use this in a cocktail where we put some of this on a sugar cube, we you know muddled it, and then poured in sparkling wine, and it was delicious. So, and how did you know, like, Kira Royales are some of my favorite drinks? <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's, it's so cool that this, uh, this farm is called Hoskins Berry Farm. It's in Oregon has these bumper crops of blackberries and a lot of other berries, but for a long time have been making, I think it's a biodynamic blackberry wine vinegar. And, you know, rather than let those things go to waste, it's sometimes hard to sell those not so great looking berries at the farmer's market, or, you know, you sell the bursted ones to jam makers. You, you have to find other businesses that will take these so-called ugly fruit. And, you know, I'm air quoting because they're not the most sightly, but they're still flavorful as hell. So they're taking that and turning it into these fruit or berry vinegars. And like wine, you know, the biodynamics, kind of letting it do what it does and letting it grow naturally and sustainably. I think you can taste all that in this vinegar. Mm. And it has a beautiful color too. I mean, it it's berry colored. It's like got a nice kind of dark kind of... Uh, kind of berry, I don't know what else to call it, <laughs> like a purplish kind of yeah, color. Yeah, it's, like, it's kind of crimson and plush. <laughs> nice, that's a better description. So this, like when it hits my tongue at the beginning, it does taste like bitters almost. Yeah. Like it's got, but then it becomes more fruit forward the longer it sits on my tongue. And it's jammy but not cooked. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's dark blackberries. Yeah. It tastes like summer to me. It does. And it's transportive. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what I think vinegars can be. And I hope that people read my book and kind of take that journey, if not actually visit these vinegar makers around the world. But I'm trying to show you that vinegars happen all around us, all around the world. And you can go to those places and taste them, you know, as they're supposed to be tasted or as they were made, but then bring them back and replicate that travel, that time, you know, that taste sensation. Yeah, I mean, I didn't just bring all these vinegars to your house. I tasted every single one before we poured them, not only to make sure that they were good and I could kind of, you know, get myself in the zone to be able to talk about them again. But yeah, it brought me back to these places. And it brings me back to taste memories too of these specific vinegars and how I use them. And I tried to find the, well, my best place, uh, my best recipes uh, or best applications of where and when I use these vinegars and put them in my book. And that's why I call all these chefs. I'm like, what is your greatest vinegar moment? You know, is it a vinaigrette? Is it a braise? Is it in a cocktail? And luckily they gave me, you know, those moments. And I was able to kind of revisit their cooking lexicon, you know, where they pinpointed that perfect spot for acidity. Mm. So I made one of the recipes from the book for today, and this is the seafoam candy. And there's not much left because there's not much left because we had a lot of it actually. So, um, but this so this is from Northern Michigan, and you know I'm from Michigan, and to me this tastes like when I was a kid, and we would go up to like the Traverse City, Charlevoix area, and 
I remember this as a kid. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not a candy maker, so I have to admit, I made like two batches and I kind of screwed up one no, batch. You, made a hell of, you did a hell of a job. Oh, thank you. You know, it's actually um, not necessarily the easiest thing to make in that it's affected by humidity and weather. Mm-hmm. So you have to make it a few times to actually kind of perfect it. And I think that's with any recipe. What I can't stand is when someone's like, oh, I tried that recipe and it didn't work. I'm like, how many times did you try it? Mm-hmm. Try it twice. Try it three times because you have to acclimate yourself to that recipe and those flavors to really kind of make it your own and understand how it works. But, mm. you know, you're speaking my language when you say northern Michigan. It's one of my favorite, if not favorite, place in the country. My wife's a Michigander. I'm a big Wolverines fan. Go blue. That area of the world is just, it's summer to me. And during summer, you're kind of leisurely doing whatever you do. And, you know, I like to snack. I have a beer. I'm right across from a little lake. And I have a wood fire oven in the backyard. And it's just magic. It's the most pastoral place I can picture in my mind. And this is one of those things I kind of get transported up there. Uh, and I get transported to a time where I was, you know, younger and got to snack on these kind of flavors. And my friend who's a chef in Michigan, Aaron Kozad of Union Joints, he also had this memory and wanted to replicate this this candy, this process, which I knew as that little volcano experiment you do in like elementary or middle school and you put some baking soda, you know, in, in a vessel and you pour some vinegar on top and it exploded. Well, right. the same thing happens with seafoam or honeycomb candy mm-hmm. and that interaction happens and you get these, you know, foamy little bits in the middle of that aeration and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's like a sponge in texture and in, in, in its look, but it's crunchy and it's light and, you know... It carries that honey flavor so well, too. I really like the way that you have these scientific terms such as roll off your tongue, (laughs) which as a liberal arts major, you know, doesn't really come naturally to me. But uh, that's because of your background. So let's talk about, you know, what your actual training is in. And I'm going to eat the rest of this Oh, yeah, please. Um, Would I call it training or would I call it, you know, what I did before I found what I really love to do? But I was a math and science guy, you know, um, a mathlete and I went to school for math and sciences or at least with the intention of pursuing that until I didn't and I dropped out and I cooked in restaurants. Uh, I had started working at a pizzeria in my hometown in Westchester, New York. Uh, Crowdon Hudson, go to Capriccio's, say hi to Mike or Tony for me. And I loved being around that setting, just seeing people work simply with pizza dough or, or people receive a slice and Uh, be so happy to eat something so delicious, but also have that interaction with a customer and make people, you know, happy. So I went into restaurants for a multitude of reasons. And I actually found there to be so much science and math there as well. So I got to use my analytical and logistical brain to kind of mold myself as a cook. And it was weird because when I first started kind of professionally cooking, I was much better at doing molecular gastronomy, you know, doing like spherification, hydrocolloids, all, all these, you know, texture terms that came out of um, Spain with the Adrias. But I didn't know how to really cook. So I had to kind of reverse engineer myself and figure out, you know, how do you make a grilled cheese or make a burger? Or So I got my hands on the bread. And bread is one of these amazing tactile things that also deals with the environment. Sometimes it's too humid or, you know, it's too cold and doughs just act so differently. Wherever you are, whatever ingredients you're using, the different flours and waters and yeast strains. So it was kind of this amazing thing where I got to think about percentage hydration, baker's weights, as well as use my hands and make this thing that was never the same twice. And the same thing kind of happened with vinegar as well. 
that it's a seasonal, it's a fleeting thing because the ingredient bases are changing every year and they're different around the world. So for me to give somebody a recipe on how to make vinegar was nearly impossible in my head. So I wrote what is in a sense like a theoretical equation at the back. It's like 16 <laughs> pages long yeah, or something. Yeah, right? but it's all variables <laughs> and controls. Yeah. And when you write an equation like that, it's positive in theory until someone proves you wrong. Um, and luckily no one has, but it's at least fostering this idea of you have to love to learn to make this thing because it won't just make itself. Well, sometimes it makes itself if you leave a bottle out you know, on the counter for too long. But you have to be a participant and you have to be able to act and react. It kind of has a beautiful kind of cycle of life feeling to it. Like, you know, just with everything we were talking about in terms of taking candy canes or coffee or um, coffee grounds or you know, the spent grains from beer and, and giving it a new life. But you have to, you know, be an active participant in making that life happen. Talking about cycle of life, this this whole book started because of one sip of vinegar. And I was like 19 or 20. I was in number nine park in Boston uh, with Chef Barbara Lynch. And she handed me this cap full of something and said, take it. And you do as Barbara says. And I shot that thing back. And I didn't even understand what I was tasting then. It was kind of syrupy and acidic, and I hadn't really tasted real balsamic vinegar yet either, and it was resonant of that, but it wasn't, and I didn't know what the heck it was. And she hands me a quarter bottle of it and says, here, take that home and don't fuck it up. (laughs) So this was like pre-Google, and it was kind of hard to research. There wasn't much literature. Um, The maker was supposedly in Austria and Vienna, this guy named Gegenbauer. I just knew his last name at that point. And 15 years later, I found myself in Vienna at Ervin Gegenbauer's house, walking around his basement where all these beautiful glass teardrop demijohns were filled with a whole bunch of different colored liquids from, you know, wines to aronia berries to tomato and, and red pepper and saffron. He makes the most singular and expressive vinegars I've ever tasted. And I quite possibly think he's the best vinegar maker in the world. But I got to close that cycle. You know, 15 years, that one sip of vinegar had been at the back of, you know, my brain, but at the front of my palate. And I just needed to kind of close that and understand why that was so important and formative, not only in my life, but, you know, as a cook. That's a great story. If you're listening to this podcast, go get some really great vinegar and have a shot of it because you never know where it's going to take you. (laughs) Well, this has been so great, Michael. Thank you so much for coming to my kitchen. Thanks for having me. And everybody I know, you'll be getting seafoam candy (laughs) for Christmas. You're welcome. That was a long episode of Hungry for Words, and so I am very excited that you stayed for the whole thing. You can check out the recipe for seafoam candy and actually see pictures of what it looks like at hungryforwords.show or kathleenflynn.com slash podcast. You can also find my conversations with other fabulously interesting food writers there as well, along with recipes from all of their books. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by Audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes. Or you can even send us an email at info at That's it for our show. 
eat well, and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn.